Luke 9, verses 23 to 36. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you the truth, there will be some standing here today who will not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his clothes was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his death, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory. And the two men that stood with him, and it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. And while he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man, in those days, any of those things which they had seen. Amen. And that is the word of God. All men seek glory, and that is without exception. It's not inherently evil. In its healthiest demonstration, glory-seeking results in the discovery of God and His radiant glory. In its unhealthy expression, glory-seeking results in man's pride, the destruction of marriages, careers, lives, and even nations. This week, the world witnessed Russia seeking to reclaim her old glory as she invaded Ukraine. And for the first time in 80 years, Europe is again at war. When threatened with sanctions, the Russian foreign minister said this in response earlier this week. Listen to what he said. I can't recall a single day when our country lived without any restrictions from the Western world. We learned to work in such conditions and not only survive, but also develop our state, end quote. We don't know what will be the end state of the current developments in Europe. 
But what we do know is that once again, the Western world is at a position of decision and profound influence. For over 500 years, the Western world has been the leading protagonist on the world stage. Now, what has brought the West, and more specifically, the United States of America, glory? And the answer, I believe, lies in verse 32 of today's scripture passage. I believe that in seeking the glory of Christ, America received much of her glory. I believe, Psalm 33, 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he has chosen as his own inheritance. If you travel back in 1620, aboard the Mayflower, the pilgrims signed a compact for their new colony. And in it, they gave the purpose behind their nation-building endeavors. The Mayflower Compact reads, quote, Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, end quote. Now right there, in their very first written constitution are the words for the advancement of the Christian faith. I believe that God honored that intention. We all know the pilgrims didn't land in Virginia. They began their lives in Massachusetts. And although half of them died because of the severity of that very first winter in New England, they nevertheless nevertheless multiplied and became what is now the United States of America. And as early as 1636, because they were so sad on their purpose of advancing the Christian faith, Massachusetts Bay Colony established America's first institution for higher education. Harvard, currently world's most prestigious university, was started by Christians in Massachusetts because they had a need for training ministers for the new commonwealth, what they called, quote, a church in the wilderness, Yes, indeed, Harvard started off as a seminary for Christian ministers. The earliest Americans saw that the most vital human need, even in the midst of very austere conditions, the most vital human need was the worship of God, and so they invested heavily in educating their ministers so that they could do what we are doing all here today, worshiping God by listening to proper doctrine being preached from God's holy word. There was an esteem of the word of God. The historical evidence leaves no doubt that the glory of America is inseparable from her faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I am old enough to remember old communist Soviet Union destroying crosses from the top of churches across Europe. Then, after years of communism, China commanded some of their own scholars to look into what made America so great and prosperous. Harvard Business School professor Neil Ferguson, in his book, Civilization, the West and the Rest, 
fascinating read, recorded the response of one scholar from the Chinese Academy of the Social Sciences. I want you to listen closely. This is not your chaplain, but someone else from another nation. Here's the quote. We were asked to look into what accounted for the preeminence of the West all over the world. At first, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. Next, we focused on your economic system. But in the past 20 years, we have realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That is why the West has been so powerful. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any doubt about this. End quote. What a powerful discovery. If I recall, that quote's from roughly 2003. But is it new? It's not a novel discovery. Our founding fathers knew that. I want you to listen to what John Adams, the second president of the United States, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he wrote back in the days of colonial America, he wrote this in his diary and autobiography. Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book. And every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged to conscience, to temperance, frugality and industry, to justice, kindness and charity towards his fellow men, and to piety, love and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be, end quote. See, what John Adams knew back then, scholars are discovering in the 21st century. Jesus Christ is the source of any nation's glory. But friends, now more than ever, I am calling for America to repent of sins and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation and glory. It is no overstatement to say that the future of, West, of the Western world depends on America doing so. Now, the glory of this morning's passage centers on the famous transfiguration of Christ. If you recall earlier in verse 19, Jesus asked his disciples about his true identity. And P Peter famously declared Jesus to be Christ, the Son of the living God. But prior to that declaration, some of his disciples responded by saying, that people mistook Jesus to be Elijah or one of the other resurrected prophets. Today's passage, then, is a powerful divine refutation of such conjectures. In today's passage, both Elijah and Moses actually show up, and their appearances put to rest any question of mistaken identity. God the Father makes a clear point in verse 35. Jesus is higher than Elijah and Moses. The gospel fulfills the prophets and the law. 
And there should not be three tabernacles constructed, as Peter suggested, but only Jesus is to be worshipped as the only begotten Son of God, fully God, fully man, full of the glory of God himself. Peter never forgets that correction from God. And verse 35 is such a powerful divine declaration that the Apostle Peter will later incorporate, incorporate this event into his ministry and even describes it in detail in 2 Peter 1.18. Go home and read it later. It's a powerful, powerful verse. But what is the main lesson behind this very famous mountaintop experience? In the lectionary today is known as Transfiguration Sunday. What's behind this moment? And the answer is, it is all about God's glory. It is not about us. In our consumer-centered society, even our churches, the Word of God is declaring it is not about us. It is all about the glory of God. And you will see in verse 27, Jesus makes the promise that some of his disciples would not die until they see his glory in the kingdom of God. And while they might have thought that that would be a long time later, it says in the text that only about eight days later, in verse 29, Jesus is so marvelously changed that his most trusted disciples actually see his future glory. But in order to truly understand verse 32, we need to first understand Verses 23 to 31. Glory, according to Jesus, does not come without a price. Indeed, the very first lesson we learn from this morning's passage is that the pathway to glory involves pain. The pathway to glory involves pain. There's an entire nation right now in Ukraine Realizing this truth, the pathway to glory will involve pain. In verse 36, Jesus speaks about a glorious future when he will return, not as a humble carpenter, but in his full glory as the King of Kings. But prior to his resurrection and glorious return, there first must be a crucifixion. Prior to a resurrection, there will be a crucifixion. You cannot have glory without pain. And the disciples right here are not ready to accept that. If we read closely, we find in verse 31, one of the reasons for this visit by Moses and Elijah. Take a look at verse 31. Moses and Elijah came to speak to Jesus about his upcoming death in Jerusalem. It's right there in the text. So even in the midst of this euphoric moment of glory, there is talk of great pain. 
And if we read this text too quickly, we miss that. And we see this lesson even in the natural realm. You don't have to be a Christian to understand this lesson. The same God who is the God of our faith has created this world for believers and unbelievers in such a way that this lesson even seeps into the natural realm. Prior to becoming a soldier, there is boot camp. Prior to becoming a practicing doctor, there is medical school with all of its ardors and exams. Prior to becoming a mother, there is pregnancy and hours of labor. In the natural world, the reality is God has made this world in such a way that glory is attained with pain. In fact, there's nothing in this world worth having that does not come without pain. The cheap things come easy. I mean, think about your meals. How easy is it to go through a fast food? How hard does it take time and effort to build a healthy meal? It seeps into the natural realm. But my second lesson this morning rises gloriously above the pain. Because scripture and Christ doesn't leave us in the pain. Although the pathway to glory involves pain, I believe Jesus shows a glimpse of his glorious future change in order to help them persevere through the pain. The second lesson this morning is this. Our future glorification with Christ in heaven powerfully motivates us, I would even say enables us to some degree, to suffer well for him on earth. That's so important, I'm going to say that one more time. Our future glorification with Christ in heaven powerfully motivates us to suffer well for Jesus on this earth. So not only does Jesus set the example by suffering for us on the cross, He never tells us to do something he wouldn't do himself first. Remember, he is the preeminent servant leader. The one who took off his robe to wash his disciples' feet. But not only does Jesus set this example for us. Here's the scary part. As you read verses 23 to 25... Jesus says this, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, then you will suffer as well. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ this morning? And what verse 23 says is that you will suffer. There's no way around it. Well, why will you suffer? You won't suffer because of your good works. That's, what, that's not what this text, if you exegete this text correctly, it is not saying that. No one will ever persecute you for giving food to the hungry in South America, Central America, Africa. No one, no one will persecute you for that. In fact, they will applaud you. No one will ever prosecute you, Right? They won't persecute you for that, but you won't get prosecuted for volunteering hours at a food pantry in Seattle. 
Christians generally will not suffer for their good works, but instead, according to verse 26, read the text, we will suffer when we begin spreading the teachings of Jesus Christ. His words bring suffering. His words bring persecution. In particular, the gospel message brings pain and suffering. And his disciples, all of them, with the exception of John, who will be exiled, all of them will die a martyr's death and experience this firsthand. There are missionaries today in the Ukraine refusing to leave because they will stand by their people. 30 years ago, they remember a Soviet Union that did not allow them to worship Jesus Christ. The message that brings suffering in many parts of the world to this day is the gospel. Now, why would the gospel bring suffering? Here's the gospel message. Very simply put, there is a God who exists. He is love, holy, just, righteous. But the bad news is that we are all sinners, both because of original sin, meaning we are born that way. We inherit a sinful nature from our first parents. But also because of sins of commission, sins of omission, sins that we've committed throughout our lives. Because of all of those sins, we deserve hell and punishment from a holy God when we die. But the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son Jesus, fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, and he died on the cross to pay for the sins of those who would believe in him. Resurrecting the third day to prove that he is indeed God. It's a historical resurrection. But here's the thing. You must personally repent and believe in Jesus as your Lord God and Savior to have eternal life. That's the gospel. God, man, Jesus, our response. But as simple as that gospel seems, so that a child is able to believe and follow Christ, it is so precious that the devil and the powers of hell would move all his forces to make sure that gospel is not heard. To make sure that gospel is marginalized. To make sure that gospel is adulterated via false religions. To ensure that a people till this day would not be able to worship God truly through that gospel. Because remember, it is only through Christ we can worship, truly worship God. That message especially as you go around the world and begin to share it in certain sections of this globe, will bring suffering. And then you broaden it. Jesus' teachings on family, human sexuality, human life, those words will bring persecution even here at home. His words bring suffering. So although going out and sharing that gospel might bring suffering, remember what I said earlier, 
the good news that lifts us above the pain is that if you decide to suffer for Jesus, then the reward in heaven will be a glorious one. And God also promises his presence in this world as well. I was watching videos of Ukrainian Christians out there praying together in their bunkers. I can't help but feel, even as I was watching, God's presence with them. I don't know what the end will be, but they are able to accept whatever tomorrow might bring because Christ lives. His presence enables us to rise above the pain. Now, conversely, verse 26, Jesus' words, not mine. For for whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, there we go again, his words. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and his Father's and of the holy angels. So according to Jesus... The person of Christ is inextricable from the words of Christ. And that should not be a surprise for us because in the very beginning of John, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God is the truth. He is the Word. You cannot separate Jesus from his teachings. So as I close this morning, take a look at verse 24. What does that verse even mean? What does it mean? And what does it look like? How does one lose his life but save it? How does a Christian take up his cross and follow Jesus into the hard places? And earlier I spoke about communist China's discovery, at least in certain circles, about the strength of the Western world, their source of strength. And although the communist government in China continues to imprison Christian pastors, destroying crosses from church buildings, in fact, they had a recent campaign to take off all the crosses, over 1,400 crosses demolished all across China. But despite all of that suffering, Christianity miraculously continues to grow in China. Back in September of 2020, The Economist ran an article, and they estimate that there are at least 38 million Protestant Christians in China today. And that number might be actually 22 million higher because of the fact that so many Chinese Christians, Protestant Christians, worship in unregistered underground churches in China. Remarkably, therefore, China now has more Christians than France or Germany. That's remarkable. How did this happen? Well, before Mao and communism, way back in the 1800s, China was a rather unreached frontier for the gospel. But through prayer and hard work, by 1877, there were 18 different Christian missions active in China, as well as three Bible societies. 
Western missionaries left the comforts of the Western world, took up their crosses, and followed Jesus into a foreign land. China had little or no gospel access. And the famous Western missionary Hudson Taylor successfully recruited many new missionaries from Western nations like Britain and the United States, Australia, and together with men like Timothy Richard from the Baptist Missionary Society, they evangelized unreached China with the gospel. But as we all know in history, in 1900, xenophobia erupted in the Boxer Rebellion. 58 missionaries were killed, along with 21 of their children. And a lot of their work was seemingly squashed from, for the moment. And to an unbelieving world, that kind of sacrifice seems tragic and foolish, does it not? Why would you bring your children there, an unbeliever would ask. But in the eyes of God, those lives lost were not in vain. In fact, what we read in verse 24 today is that those missionaries exemplified exactly what it means to lose earthly lives but to gain eternal salvation. 